1: So we're being with the child moment by moment, instant by instant. In this instant, things are good. I'm giving you recognition for it. In this moment, you're breaking a rule. I'm telling you to reset. You stopped breaking the rule. I'm celebrating with you. Oh, you're breaking it again. I'm telling you to reset. And you are by seconds, you're with the child. And if you keep your energy low enough when you're correcting and high enough, hey, look at you patting the dog so gently and not running. If it's high enough, children are attracted to that, and that's where they will drift. So your real power in Nurtured Heart is with sand too. How steady of a flow of positive regard, joyful vision of who this kid is and how they're revealing their own levels of beauty can you be in the moment, authentically, really feeling joy in your heart? How authentically can you cause the child to see that you see beauty in him in this moment?
0: Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Therapist Uncensored. This month, we have pulled some of our older episodes and we've kind of cultivated a list for you that is designed to specifically give you support during this particularly difficult time we are increasing our publication so in other words instead of doing it every other week we are doing it weekly but they are from our catalog and the ones that we've picked you know they're designed basically to give you content or support or connection with a particular guest that we think that you could use right now today We were right at the finish line with COVID and being able to get back to normal, and anytime you've been under stress and thinking it's about to be over and then that finish line moves, it's really tough, no matter what perspective you're coming from. So we hope that both by publishing more frequently and by curating the list to be able to provide you support during this hard time, that this will be really valuable for you. It's crazy because though some of these were recorded up to a year and a half ago, it's eerie that they are so relevant still today. We will be returning live, of course, soon, but in the meantime, my partner and I, Dr. Ann Kelly, send our love and support, and we hope that you enjoy
1: these replays. Okay, let's get to it. Well, first, let me be transparent. I've actually been using the Nurtured Heart Approach for 20 years, so I was an early adopter, and... The reason was very simple. I went to a training in 2000 and I walked out of it, a six hour training with the creator, with Howard Glasser. And I walked out saying like, duh, this makes so much sense. Why was I not doing this already? Just instinctually went to work, started practicing. I had three-year-old twin sons at home at the time, started using it with my children. And I gradually began using it more and more pervasively. And my results were just, so astoundingly different than anything else that I'd ever tried that I took a deep dive. It was the results that I got that turned me onto it.
2: Yeah, I have to mention that. That's the reason I'm excited to have you on the show. When you work with anybody or anybody that you've trained works with, some of my clients, I resoundingly hear that response.
1: Mm-hmm. It's not a very complex system, so that's really what's so astounding about it is it's not that hard to learn, but it has a very strong impact. The model that I use currently and that you're referring to people I've trained, that I've trained them in, is you begin with the nurtured heart approach. You don't begin with individual psychotherapy of children. I don't at all anymore, regardless of the presenting concern. And when the nurtured heart approach is firmly in place and being used with fidelity, the vast majority of the cases I work with, I never end up seeing the child. I would say about 60% of my cases, I open them, do parenting work and close them. And parents no longer want to bring their child and there's no longer a need.
2: I love that idea. So tell me why. What about the approach is so impactful?
1: So it changes the emotional tone of the family would be my succinct response to that question. My view is that parents should manage the emotional tone of the family, should be alert to it, and should keep it positive. In our society right now, we're very child oriented. And so often the hierarchies in our families get flipped and we either have a flat hierarchy with all the kids and all the parents having equal say and equal vote or the kids end up on top. And I'm not a huge disciplinarian that parents need to like wear the boots, right? But I do think that when kids end up in charge, kids' ephemeral emotions can run the show And negativity can take over. And then when parents also dive into the negativity, you can end up with a real negative feeling in the home. And I would say most of the people who come to see me are coming because negativity has taken over in some way. Either they're angry at the child because they see the child as irresponsible or disrespectful or the child is angry at the parents feeling oppressed and then the parent's mad that the child's mad, or everybody's scared. The child's anxious. The mom's afraid the child will never get traction in life and never succeed. So mom's anxious. Dad's irritated that mom is babying the child. The mood of a child can transform the family into a family in which negative emotions and painful emotions rule.
2: I can imagine that it is really tempting then to, since the kid's negativity or the high intensity energy coming from the child, it would be really easy to try to put that child separately and in therapy to say, hey, deal with these emotions, please. We're having a really hard time at home.
1: And that is the traditional model. And that model can be useful. I don't mean to say that that model should be thrown out. But my reasons for preferring to go at it this way is I find it to be much more efficient. You can work with a child with anger issues for months and years. You can work with a child who's anxious or depressed for months or years, and you can get some traction, and you can make some changes. But the image that I have is the child's pushing against their own mood issues and the weight of the family to come out of it. I don't think that's a child's job. If you go at it from parenting, I find it much more efficient. I have people done as quickly as six sessions. I feel it puts the responsibility where it belongs. It's the job of the family, of the parents to change how the family runs, not the child. And I think it avoids pathologizing children. Children don't ever have to have the experience of going to therapy, knowing they have a diagnosis, being identified as the one with symptoms and issues. So it's protective from my perspective.
2: Wonderful. So tell us more about the tenets of it. Tell us more about the framework.
1: So the framework is actually very simple and parents learn it easily. And I've taught parents with doctorates and I've taught parents who are high school dropouts. Education doesn't play in whether or not you get it. Parental mental health can play in. Healthier parents grasp it and implement it more easily. But parents love their kids so much. I've had parents learn it against the odds and implement it well against the odds on behalf of their kids. So the basic tenants are we talk a lot about what we call relational energy within the Nurtured Heart Approach. And relational energy is a combination of attunement, focus, attention, warmth. And so we have this for anyone we're interacting with right now. Like right now I'm sitting on a computer via Zoom looking at you and I feel relational energy coming from you. I see you nod when I speak. I see you smile. I feel like you're making eye contact, even though we're on Zoom. And so, you know, you lean in. So all of this is a pronounced experience for children, beginning with babies. Babies know, think the edtronic videos. Like babies know when you're tuned in and babies know when you disconnect, right? So that power of connection is highly motivating to children. Children notice when we're absent, even though we're present. In the flesh, right? And children notice the authenticity of that connection. And so that is the juice with which we can guide children. And I'm setting the tenants aside, and I'm actually going to something that I think is more basic, if that's all right, which is children can end up upside down around our relational energy. And this is how it plays out. Your six-year-old comes in and takes his shoes off at the door because they're muddy. And you say, hey, nice, Jeremy, thanks. Did you feel some relational energy?
2: Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Jeremy comes in and does not take his shoes off and tromps mud all over your house. And you say, Jeremy, dude, seriously, how many times do I have to tell you that is not okay? Look, this, I'm going to have to clean this up. You're going to clean up with me. Did you feel some relational energy?
2: Yeah, I feel myself sort of shrinking. Shrinking on two levels, shrinking on what it feels to have you relate that to me and my memory of having done exactly that as a
1: parent. Exactly. Yeah, we all have. Like we all live within a human nervous system and we're all doing our best. But the beauty of Nurtured Heart is it clears the pathway to doing it in a way that's more effective and less stressful for parents and children. But the real reason I gave you was that example is which of those two experiences gave you the bigger dose of intensity?
2: Oh, definitely the first one. Well, the first one, it depends on what level of intensity, I guess you mean. The, the second one, I could feel the intensity of just shame coming over my body. Avoidance. I wanted to back up from you.
1: So take the flavor out. The second one was negative. The first one was positive. But which one was, if you remove the positive and negative, did the second one feel more potent? Did I slam you harder than I warmed you? Yes, for sure. That's the key to the nurtured heart approach. Intense children crave the bigger bite of life every time. So one of the ways they get upside down with us is when our little, oh, thank you, doesn't land for them. They need more contact, right? Mm -hmm. They need a more powerful sense of you're in there with me. And when we're scolding them, we're leaning in, our face is flushed, our eyes are glowing, we're focused on nothing but them, and we're giving it to them. That's powerful. Not all children, but some children will be dissuaded from the, acts of cooperation because all they get is a good job when what they want is something richer and we tend to give something richer even though someone like you and like me, I identify with you, the negativity in a potent form drives me away and that was your initial response is Oh, we can tell something about your nervous system by that you aren't going for the more intense experience you are going for the more sweet experience but there are people who go for the more intense experience, those children often end up with the diagnosis of ODD ADHD children sometimes fall in that category.
2: Well, say more about that. Just from a neurological perspective, do you think that the kids would go for the more negative? What's happening in their nervous system that would make them lean in more towards the negative?
1: So let me make a small refinement on your question. It's not that they're leaning in toward the more negative. They're leaning in toward the stronger.
2: The stronger, absolutely.
1: They want the more potent experience. They would rather it not be negative. They'd like that potent experience to be positive. But the way we parent intuitively, we often dose them up big on the negative and we're very mild, kind of insipid even on <laughs> the positive. Because they, we believe, if they
2: hear us really strongly and we're really clear, that's going to make the difference in their nervous system. And so that's where we get more emphatic and louder. And Jeremy, what are
1: you doing? Right. That's ex- so. There you have it. That's a key concept of the nurture heart approach: is being more intense around negativity is upside down. We need to be more intense around positivity, and we need to be fairly bland around our corrections. So the child gets a clear message that we revel in and glorify anything the child does or experiences that's on track and that when oppositionality occurs or mistakes occur, our response is very moderated. That way we can scoop up the children who go for the positive and we can scoop up the children who go for the more intense experience every time.
2: I think about the nervous system and how much self-regulation is involved. When I see those shoes tracking on the floor, I'm thinking about my own body as Jeremy's walking across my floor and I'm seeing the mud on the rugs and I can feel my nervous system really get charged up. So it could be a challenge, I imagine, to really be attuned to your own body and how you respond to the kids. It seems like it takes a lot of teaching of self-awareness of your own neurological reactions.
1: You're completely right, and that's what we're asking children to do. We ask children to regulate. We ask children to not blow up, to not run away, to not weep uncontrollably, and we need to not only model that for them, but live that with them. And so, yes, we're asking parents, a big ask. For some parents, it's exceedingly difficult to learn to regulate, and we can put a lot of focus on that. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is help parents regulate so that children can regulate, because a dysregulated adult provokes a dysregulated child. So we have to allow children, if we're going to buy this model, to dysregulate because they're kids and they're learning. And we have to stay regulated nonetheless. And a lot of time can be spent on parental regulation.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Do you teach any specific skills, like even in that example that you could think of, of how a parent could slow down their nervous system and that reaction? Because intuitively, it makes complete sense, right? If I don't scream and yell at Jeremy and I calmly, maybe just calmly remind him of that, what you're saying is going to go much better. I could also imagine that being really challenging at times. Is there a skill, even in that one example, a little tidbit you could throw
1: out? So there are a lot of skills out there. And you can use any of them in companion with this. And so some people learn it in six weeks. I've seen families for a year working just on the parenting. And those longer families are the ones where the parents need more of their own work. So I will refer them out for their own individual therapy. If they discover running every morning helps, we'll work on getting that up and running. People do yoga, people do meditation. There are loads of things that people can do to regulate their own system. And that is the adult work. And that's work that we try to walk parents through finding what they need in order to develop. I don't bond to any specific program, but I know it's an issue. And that can slow things down. And those are the families where once it gets done, the transformation of the family follows right behind it.
2: So hence the statement you made earlier that you really turn the responsibility back to the parent, That to really the onus is go, let's really look at what's happening in your body instead of why is Jeremy so stubbornly always doing the same thing repetitively all over again and all over again. And we're just like, but I've told him five times and now we're focusing on attention issues because I've told him five times and he never seems to learn this approach really flips it back and say what is it in your body that keeps you from so reacting and being able to more measuredly remind him
1: and so that goes to the question that I deferred which is once you have the concept of relational energy and that some children go like you and I for the sweeter energy some children go for the bigger energy and these are children who like crave contact. You know, those sensory seeking kids who want to snowboard and wakeboard and get in a fist fight because they like the physicality, like let it be big, right? There are kids that are that way emotionally. We all know people like that, who like the big experience. Sometimes those kids will go for the big, even if it's negative, because they need the contact, that right. sense of being the sole focus of their parents' attention with passion, right? Right. So what we are doing with the nurtured heart to give you the basic tenets is there are three tenets and we call them the three stands. Stand one, no energy to negativity. Stand two, high energy to positives. And stand three, total clarity about what expectations are. Parental regulation is required. You've got to be able to control your own energy to implement this, right? Mm -hmm. So stand one is Jeremy walks in with mud on his feet and you see him walk across your house and you say, Jeremy, stop. I need you to take your shoes back to the front door. Was that clear? Extremely. Was that agitated? No. No. I used as few words as I could. So you try to keep your passion low. Back to Dan Siegel, all of your nonverbal tells eye contact, facial expression, tone of voice, quantity of speech, volume, posture, gesture. That all needs to be regulated to transmit to the child. This is not where the excitement is. Forgetting to take your shoes off is not where you get me. Nothing to see here. The gift of me, my intimacy, is not available around that mistake. I don't need to yell at you. Go take your shoes off. That's stand one. No energy for problems. Stand two high energy for successes. That means once you figure out what turns your kid on, and I wouldn't yell at you now that I know how it makes your nervous system react, right? For you, I would probably lean in and have a very warm and intimate lecture. And stop, listen to me. Thank you so much for taking your shoes off. You are only six years old and you remember no one even told you. And there they are neatly by the door, there is no mud on the floor. You remembered how important that is to me. It shows a lot of responsibility. It shows a commitment to not making your poor mom stress out. Thank you for that. I want to honor you for that choice because it would have been easy to forget. You came in super excited.
2: Yeah, you've got total compliance. You got me.
1: <laughs> I got compliance from you. With yeah. a different kid a wild ADHD running little girl. I might say, whoa, stop the bus, Ann, your shoes are by the door. Oh my goodness. You made my day. You made my week. I think it's time for a Popsicle break. Anybody want a Popsicle break on behalf of Ann's success? All right, let's go. Popsicles for everybody because of you. Did you feel how intense that was for a different kid?
2: What I love about what you're distinguishing is really helpful for me because I think because I lean towards the first approach for the calm, whatever, like I can even see myself in mistakenly guiding parents in that direction. What you're saying is that high energy kid, you can match high energy with real positive statements. If you need to be loud and intense to be able to match the kid and get them to hear it, but you can do it through positive cheering on.
1: And you use the exact word that I like to hear, match. We need to match the kid. One parenting style is not fit all. Some kids are easily embarrassed, and they do best if you say, dude, thanks for taking your shoes off. That was so responsible. Because they might feel embarrassed if you're bellowing. So what works for your child to give the proper dose of intense relationship? You're leaning in. They're smelling your perfume. They're seeing your eyes smile at them while you're giving them what they crave. And when you put that in contrast with giving them very little relational energy for the error, you see where they're going to get drawn and where they're going to no longer be drawn.
2: Right. So the very importance of attunement, attunement to what is specifically your child's nervous system style. I was thinking of one of my kids. Yes, if I was to praise him at each time he did, I would probably get an eye roll. But being able to just kind of on the side say, it thanks for doing that and moving on, his body would definitely feel that.
1: And with practice, you can even make those children who don't take much, you can make the commentary richer because this also feeds into identity. Who do we want our children to think they are? What they hear coming at them repeatedly builds their idea of who they are. That's why we have the tragedies of learning disabled children thinking they're stupid. That's why we have the tragedies of shy children thinking they're boring. That's why we have the tragedies of impulsive children thinking that they're bad is because what are they hearing? What's drawing our attention? What feedback are they getting from the world? So you can be the architect of the feedback that your child gets in your home to build them into owning their greatness because every kid's great. Every kid has their genius zone. Every kid has their areas in which they're astounding. So we want them to know that. And they get to know it by us pointing out repeatedly, creativity, it again. So rich language, moving away from the good job, okay, I like it. Or even I'm proud. I'm proud is not about the child's greatness. Mm -hmm. I'm proud is about how he made me feel. If we want this child to go through the world, and I feel especially heated about this with little girls who can be raised to please, even now in the 2000s, how can we help them feel that they are great and that their greatness is not making me proud? by using a rich vocabulary of the virtues that we see.
2: I like that because it's not about, I've always had a little bit of an issue with pride. I'm proud of you because it does see, it feels like some ownership rather than just really allowing the child to sort of feel, I'm so impressed with what you just did, right? Like even that slight turn of impressed because it's really reflecting of what they did. But you're saying it's also taking it deeper. What is the thing that you see in that child that's going to reflect their identity
1: there's an attunement required but there's also an acceptance like nurtured heart when done exceedingly well has no agenda it works to change children's behaviors it works to change mood disorders and to lift children's moods but when you're doing it you're not thinking i'm going to thank Anne for taking her shoes off i want her to keep taking her shoes off no, I'm not doing it to manipulate you so you'll do it again next time, even though that's a lovely side effect that we'll probably get. I want to thank you because I see the beauty in you as a six-year-old with presence of mind. And I'm so in awe that at six, you could have that presence of mind that I'm going to tell you about
2: it. It's not about approximation to a behavior result that you want. I feel as you're speaking that the child's ability to relax in a moment so intensifies. You know, children pick up when you're sort of, for lack of a better word, manipulating, right? I want Jeremy to do this. So I'm going to keep saying, Jeremy, good job. Jeremy, good job. Because I want it to be repetitive. What I hear you saying is that you're looking for a deep authenticity and connection for who that child is. And in that one moment, rather than just where you want to lead them, it allows the body to relax more and be in the moment together.
1: Exactly. And more sensitive children or children who are astute can read judgment and manipulation like Braille. If all you're doing is being nice in order to get something you want, you can trigger quite a bit of opposition.
2: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. You can really trigger opposition in kids. Like there's something about the oppositional child that sounds so separate from their environment rather than how can we induce opposition? And it's not a conscious choice, right? If the child feels that they're being manipulated, they feel oppositional. It's not necessarily a conscious choice to get oppositional, right? It's like their body's response to feeling something's wanted from them. It could really produce a resistance, right? Is that what you're saying?
1: I'm saying that. Absolutely. And at even a deeper level, there are children who've been indoctrinated into a dance of the way I get you off your cell phone, out of the kitchen, away from my brother, is by opposing. So that's where the relationship is. And these children can be tutored accidentally that when they're minding their own business, playing with their train, nobody says anything. But all they have to do is tell you no, and suddenly nothing, you're not too busy for a fight. We're often never too busy for negativity in a fight, right? although we are too busy to just enjoy the beautiful moment of a child just being all right.
2: Well, and I guess also, if I think about it, our minds are sort of trained to kind of watch for the negative and grab it, right? Like our minds are so used to picking up more negativity than positive in general. So instinctually, we're going to see the negative. We're going to see, quit doing that. I think of different types of attachment style in parents and kids too, are going to be more drawn to be vigilant to that negativity in order to contain it, you know, and so have to really learn to be able to orient their body to the positive. It's a process, I imagine, for some of us.
1: There's a rewiring that needs to occur because, you know, just speaking to all the interviews that you've done and posted since you began this project, we talk over and over and over again about our human brain is a big old problem-solving machine, a big old do-not-get-killed machine that's mission is to find the problem. So we can hone in on the child picking his nose in a group of 30 children where 29 of them are not.
2: (laughs) That's a great example. (laughs)
1: So there's a lot of personal work that parents do. Some people come quite equipped. All they need is the toolbox. You give them the toolbox, they're off to the races, they're done. And other people, it provokes a great deal of personal growth and a lot of their own personal work in order to be able to do it. And I feel like it's a beautiful moment when parents are seeking help for their children because at that moment, people are very open to looking at themselves often. Most parents are so committed to parenting and love their children so much, they will do something they would never have done before, like go into therapy. They will do something that they didn't have time for a few years ago for the good of their child. So we have so much power as therapists that work with children to rope parents in and to not let the child become the pathologized one.
2: So there's a lot of work that you do, I imagine, in initial sessions, especially to really help parents grasp that from a place of non-shame, non-blame on the parent, but to engage in the openness that this shift is so important, their ability to regulate themselves and to inspire them to want to do this.
1: To inspire them and also to see the greatness in them. The parents that show up on our doorsteps are doing something uncomfortable expensive and inconvenient for their children they're taking off work driving to an appointment writing a big chat they're going home and working on themselves on behalf of their kids if that's not admirable I I don't know what it's so easy to be in your heart and really see the extraordinary characteristics of the parents who are willing to do this
2: I'm so appreciative about you being on the show. There's so many parents out there that have that heart and don't have access. They don't have access, whether it's location they live in, financial access, to be able to get this kind of support. So to put this out there far and wide for people to really learn from you, that if they've tuned in, they've tuned in and they've seen something about nurtured heart approach and parenting and say, I want to listen, that's a parent that is going to be really open to looking.
1: No parents are amazing. Uh, after my as far as I am in my career, I'm 60 now. I did my first inpatient work. I started when I was 22 and I worked in a psychiatric hospital with mm-hmm. adolescents and children and was kind of the beginning of this path. and one thing that I've learned over those years is parents have all the power. Parents have so much power and in their families they feel that they don't, often because their tools are inadequate for the job, not because they're inadequate, that they don't have the proper tool. This tool is the tool and that children benefit from parents being confident and secure in their parenting and competent in their approach.
2: So let's review. You talked about the three stands. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and let's review all three of them.
1: So let me say something first before that. We use the word stand on purpose. They're not three opinions. They're not three hypotheses or three things I'm going to try. We talk about the three stands in terms of taking a stand. Mm-hmm. So if I take a stand against racism, I'm flipping taking a stand. I like that. I'm going to vote consistent with my belief. I'm going to socialize consistent with my belief. I'm going to speak up when I see something occur that's racist. If I donate money to any cause, you know which cause I'm going to donate to because I've taken a stand. We don't take a stand and then say, oh, it's hard, sorry. We don't take a stand and say, oh, racism still exists. I quit. I'm going to take a different stand. If you take a stand, you put your money where your mouth is. You mean it. It matters. It's for life. And you walk the walk. So when we say the three stands, we mean take a stand and this is permanent. And you are going to walk the walk. And you're going to do it even when it's hard. You're going to do it when you have a headache. You're going to do it when you're discouraged. You're going to do it when you don't think you're making progress. So the three stands are like basic commitments that are serious.
2: I'm so glad you stopped to explain why three stands, because even as you were describing it, there's a way in which my whole nervous system calms down, right? It's like when I talk to parents about voice down, right? Instead of voice up, like the confidence you give the children's nervous system, when they feel that a parent is coming from a place of confidence and taking a stand, it's not ambivalent. So I can then slow my nervous system down as a child because I can feel the confidence in you. When you say I'm taking a stand, it's not I'm trying something, I'm going to do this strategy, I'm going to, it's no working at it. It's like literally these are the three stands we're going to take and they're doable And they're easy to remember. And so it does build confidence in the parent, which of course, like you're saying, is going to build confidence in the child. Hey, my parents got it.
1: And you keep coming back to confidence. And I think what you're approaching is the idea of how much security it produces for a child. Stand one, no energy for negativity. That doesn't just mean no screaming at kids and no cussing at kids and no snatching and grabbing and spanking kids. It also means no lectures. It also means no harsh eye contact. It also means no exasperated, I give up. The one, my mother, bless her heart. She's still living and she's awesome and she may hear this, but she would laugh. When we were little, she would say, God give me strength. (laughs) That's negativity, right? So when you say no energy to negativity, it means you're not even going to go, how low can you get it? That's why it's a lifelong project. We succeed at not yelling. Okay. Can we succeed at not snarling? Oh, great. I'm not yelling or snarling. Can I succeed at not grimacing and rolling my eyes? How low can we get the energy as we work on the stand and making it ever cleaner? So no energy to negativity means a child's misbehavior, a child's failure, a child's defiance, a child not being able to pay attention long enough to do what he just said he was going to do, social conflict, any of that stuff that you see as an area where the child is not living out of his capacity to be awesome. You're going to bring your energy down. That does not mean you don't correct. You correct with no energy.
2: That's a great distinction. You correct, but you correct with no negative energy.
1: No running in the house. Thank you so much for stopping running, and you did it in like one second. Dude, you're the speediest person for cooperation that I have in my life, maybe. That's awesome. You just stopped on a dime. I would have tipped over if I'd have stopped that fast. You're coordinated, too. Like, how can you make it fun for the kid that compliance is where you get the juice? No hitting your brother? No arguing. Clear, clean, soft. And as you said, if you are confident that you're going to hold that line, it transmits. And what you will get when you first start this with children is they'll do it again, or they'll do it worse. They'll run in the house while looking over their shoulder to see what you're going to do because they're working for that energy they're accustomed to getting. They're like, if I run even faster, maybe with muddy shoes, maybe while bumping into furniture, maybe I can get mom to yell because I'm kind of used to that pattern. It's familiar, not pleasant, but familiar and juicy, right? And so when you first initiate this, you often get a bump of increased issues and then a settling when the child discovers it's a dry well. I don't get nothing no more.
2: So what do you suggest then? I I can imagine this being super challenging for a lot of parents. So you're saying don't run and they look you in the eyes, especially children that have been maybe trained or learned to be much more oppositional. And they just, they double down and they're looking you at the eyes. And that's, I'm sure where we have self-reflection. They're looking you in the eyes and intentionally doing it because you just told them not to.
1: That's right. So, one thing to remember is in Nurtured Heart, you get your power through the positives, not through the negatives. So, the moment of disobedience is not the moment where you're going to get the most dramatic change. In the moment of disobedience, your mission is to not blow the game, (laughs) to not blow your approach by blowing up. So, the child looks at you, snickers, and runs. And you say, Reset. The child runs up the stairs and makes sure you can hear his feet pounding. Then you hear at the top of the stairs that he paused to pat the dog. Hey, you stopped running, and you're being so sweet with the dog. Thanks for listening. Then he couldn't resist the urge to now run to his room. No running in the house. So we're being with the child moment by moment, instant by instant. In this instant, things are good. I'm giving you recognition for it. In this moment, you're breaking a rule. I'm telling you to reset. You stopped breaking the rule. I'm celebrating with you. Oh, you're breaking it again. I'm telling you to reset. And you are by seconds, you're with the child. And if you keep your energy low enough when you're correcting and high enough, hey, look at you patting the dog so gently and not running. If it's high enough, children are attracted to that. And that's where they will drift. So your real power in Nurtured Heart is with sand too. How steady of a flow of positive regard, joyful vision of who this kid is and how they're revealing their own levels of beauty. Can you be in the moment authentically really feeling joy in your heart? How authentically can you cause the child to see that you see beauty in him at this moment?
2: Yeah. As you say that, I can just, you know, the energy as you even say it to say the beauty that you see in the kids You know, you can feel, I think for the listeners out there, you probably can feel it as Elizabeth says it, this, the warmth that comes over you. The concept of finding the beauty in the child, we're not just talking about behavioral compliance. We're not just saying, I'm so glad that you are complying with me. You're seeing the beauty inside the child, which is such an essential part. You know, Dan, so we talk a lot about children needing to really feel our delight in them. And we're using the word delight around really trying to help a child learn their essence, right? So even in trying to really build this connection with them in this nurtured heart approach, you're really developing their sense of self and their self identity being great. Even if they tend to run over and over again and forget that you've told them they're still great.
1: That's right. That's right. And we don't want the misstep of thinking that running in the house defines you. Like, I make that mistake and now I'm marked as a bad kid for life. Or build the identity of, oh, I'm just the kid who has no self-control. I can't stop running. So stand three, absolute clarity, means that children know exactly what the rules and expectations are. And they know they can bank on you to celebrate them when they live within the bounds. And they know that they can bank on you to give a calm consequence every time they're out of bounds. So that doesn't mean only we're not going to be spanking kids because that's not a calm consequence. It also means there's really not a lot of need to say, that does it, no screen time one month. Like it's just not necessary because you're going to win by your consequence being given every single time the rule is broken. And it can be a rather small consequence. If every time you went over the speed limit on Mopac, if you got a ticket for five bucks, that's what we're doing as opposed to getting caught randomly twice a year and getting a $250 ticket.
2: Yeah, I'd be broke.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's just be clear. (laughs) So what we're doing is we're really focused on giving a consequence every time. A toe out of line is a toe out of line.
2: Can you give me an example of that? Because I can see as a parent that could be, like, is what you're saying is, I guess a consequence can be just also hearing from me, we don't run in the house. So when you're saying consequence, it could just be a verbal reminder. Let's say the rule is to not be using your phone, not using your phone after seven. So I keep finding my child with the phone after seven. And I say, we're not going to use the phone after seven. Of course, I'm also hearing from this that I want to implement a positive. You're so good. You've been really, really holding to that. I really can see it.
1: That's where the power is. The power isn't in the yes, not in the no.
2: And then though I, it's the third time I've made the rule, no phones after seven. I keep discovering my child with the phone. And you're saying every single time there's a consequence. Say more about that in that example.
1: So if you discover that structure is not clear enough, you may need to work on your clarity around the rule. And the rule may be at seven o'clock, I'd like you to turn your phone in. I need you to turn your phone in at seven. So you increase the clarity of the rule. So then instead of keeping going in at 715, 725, 740, 810, and saying you're still on your phone, I need you to get off of it. You just deal with that through clarifying the rule. So then at seven, you go, if she brings you your phone, you're like, thank you so much for following that rule. It shows such respect for the structure in our houses. It shows your self-control because you know you could have snuck about 10 more minutes because I was kind of busy and I didn't know to go get it, but you brought it to me. Thank you for that. But if she doesn't, you go in and you say, phone please. Thank you for giving it to me. Done. So you're keeping your energy so low around noncompliance. And to where you went really instinctively already is your real glory is what you do with the compliance. And that's where most of the power is. When a child makes a mistake, is not really a teachable moment. We think it is. There's this whole kind of popular notion that, oh, David just blew it. This is a teachable moment. I have to step in, right? No, that's not the teachable moment. The teachable moment is the other 99% of moments when he's not blowing it and making it adequately gratifying for him in those moments.
2: That's wonderful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that this works for all kids and all families? Is it certain particular types of issues that you see it working the best for? Or do you feel like it works for most kids?
1: So I can get headway with every family I've tried. I can get something with every family I've tried. It was originally designed for children with ADHD, where it -hmm. works like a charm. It works quite well with children with oppositional defiance. But since then, it's been used by various practitioners. Certain people who use this system have a specialty practice. It's very successful in the autism community and among those therapists. It's being used successfully with trauma. I use it a lot with anxiety. For some reason, people in Austin think I'm an anxiety specialist, which I'm not really. But I do think Nurtured Heart works so well with anxiety that people with anxious children have success, a lot of the more current protocols for intervening around anxiety require a great deal of parenting work because parents' approaches to an anxious child can foster and augment the anxiety unintentionally. So I think Nurtured Heart addresses that aspect of working with anxiety disorders. So I'd say its effect is very broad. It's being used in schools. Teachers learn it and use it for general classroom management. Currently, the state of New Jersey has adopted it as their intervention in their children's system of care, which means statewide, any child that's in out-of-home placement on the state's dime, whether it's foster care, juvenile detention, group homes, psychiatric hospitals have to be in the care of staff trained in the nurtured heart approach. So they're using it across diagnoses there. And their early results are surprisingly powerful. Great decreases in restraints. Great decreases in staff burnout. I could go on.
2: Wow, that's so heartening. And I can imagine for those out there that are listeners that are teachers or any other organizations that work with kids you know, of course, as a couples therapist, this is also very relevant for working with anybody, not just children. But I can imagine that this is actually so applicable to so much more than just in the family or in your therapeutic room, really organizationally using this to alter the way organizations respond to kids.
1: Absolutely. It's actually even being taken into the business world. I've trained people who wanted to use it in their business. I trained an emergency room physician last year, use it in his emergency room. I trained all the staff from a psychiatric hospital in New Orleans for use on their adult unit. It's being taken into geriatric facilities for work with the elderly.
2: Well, tell me, how does this approach, do you feel like, how do you feel like it changes the family or family life? we're talking about it changing systems and I just think, you know, it, it feels so impactful and I imagine that it could have such a deep change on
1: a family that really, really embraces it. So I consider it to be a form of milieu therapy. So what we're really shooting for is changing the emotional tone of the family, changing the relationship, the emotional tone of the relationship between the parent and the child. But... We don't advise you do it just with your difficult child. You do it with everybody. So if you have five children, you do it with all of them, and you do it with your partner. And so when the family changes its focus from focusing on what's wrong to focusing on what's right, you can see how that would impact the day-to-day feel of the family. There's also a premium on regulation. We're not just asking our ADHD daughter to regulate We're asking everybody to learn to reset, to learn to regulate, to learn to get back on track when they're off track. And that's all a reset is. A reset is saying to someone lovingly, I see you're off track. Get back on track.
2: And I'm here for you.
1: You did it. Yeah. You did it. Now you're back on track. And so a reset is a gift. It's a gift to a person. It's a reminder that they could live out of their greatness. And so when reset becomes an equal opportunity consequence, parents reset themselves out loud. They reset children. Children can reset parents. Couples can reset each other. The stand-to recognitions flow, and everyone has the expectation of themselves to not overreact to negativity, to regulate. What you find is you create a home environment that's more peaceful, that's more loving, And that's more focused on appreciation. So it creates a kind of love that's based on an accurate attunement to the beauty in each member of the family.
2: I'm glad that you brought up earlier that what we really are talking about is security. What we're talking about is developing deep internal security in each other and in the family system.
1: There's been a lot of success using this with adopted children who have trauma history or abandonment history and attachment issues. And the beauty of using it with those children is they can learn quite quickly that they can bank on their parents not to overreact. That misbehavior or problems just don't bring trauma in this family. And they can bank on their parents to see them with rose-colored glasses which helps them understand what's great in themselves and which undercuts that tendency we see in children with trauma histories or adoption and relational trauma to think that it's their fault because they aren't likable, because somehow they're damaged. No one would want them, that their needs are too much, that their emotions are too much. You just debunk all of that in a day-to-day, moment-by-moment living in which you discover you're not too much.
2: The development of the deeper sense of security. We are always speaking about on the podcast, the idea that it is looking at our own internal security that has the effect on the external world instead of the other way around. And this is just really attesting to that, that we're talking about our own internal regulation, being able to then bring to us those things that we really want more in the world from our kids, from our partners. So I love the emphasis on your own emotional regulation, and then the ability to see the positive and to really look for, not just that, but really creating the ability to see the greatness in each other and in your
1: children. And the word creating so rang a bell for me because really what we're doing is we're creating success. Yes. We're not waiting for a child to go off to college and have made a wise decision so we can say, yay, good job, right? We're starting when they are three noticing what they do that indicates the greatness within them so they can have full heartfelt ownership of their own abilities and assets and gifts. If they have a genius zone, it'll gradually reveal itself if you keep your eyes open and you're looking. And if you're more interested in that than you are in, in the damaged part or the difficult, challenging part. I love that.
2: I could talk to you all day. There's so much to go in this. I think we're going to bring you on again later because I, I really think we have so much we could still cover. We're going to leave our listeners hungry for more, I think. A question that I have for you is for those parents out there, and we have many therapists that tune into this podcast. What recommendations do you have for them in learning about this approach or applying this approach in their practice? Do you have any
1: recommendations? Absolutely. You need to be educated first because if you just do it at a glance, you'll do it at a behavioral level. And it functions at a behavioral level. Behavior modification works. And you can use the nurtured heart approach as if it were merely a behavior modification program. But it doesn't get the hardest kids that way. And it doesn't produce the inner wealth in children mm. when you use it at a behavioral level. They just learn they can comply and get the cookie. Right. And so to use it at a deeper level, you need some training. So there's a book called Transforming the Difficult Child, The Nurtured Heart Approach, which is Howard Glasser's original publication. Um, you can find it anywhere. You can get training by trainers. You can go to the Children's Success Foundation which is the foundation that supports the Nurtured Heart Approach, and they have a list of trainings that you can attend. There's a five-day training that's done several times every year. Now we're doing it by Zoom. I just did that last week, five days on Zoom, and it was no less powerful than in person in ways it was more powerful. And if you go to the five-day training, you can become a certified Nurtured Heart Approach Trainer.
2: And let me ask you that. What about parents? So that is to become a certified trainer. What about parents that might be really interested in this approach?
1: So parents can also read the book. You can go online and find a trainer in your community. It's sorted on the website by state and town, and you may be able to find someone who would train you locally. And parents are also welcome to go to the certification training. Some parents want the five-day intensive so that they really got this stuff, and they're as welcome as therapists to that training.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. They can do the training themselves. Just think how the the intervention and probably seeking out a therapist that has this kind of training also. Elizabeth, you are also working very at the closed end of working on a book with one of your colleagues. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: I am. So Kathy Shearer, who's a psychologist in town who specializes in parenting work. And by the way, is also absolutely wonderful. She is absolutely wonderful. She brings a depth that I find so calming. She and I have put together a book on parenting. The book is focused on work with young therapists, early career therapists, to help launch into their career with a broad knowledge of attachment, emotion regulation, neurobiology, and how that plays out in parenting. With Nurtured Heart as an example of a way to implement all of those perspectives in parenting on a day-to-day basis. And we're really promoting doing parenting before you begin individual with a child.
2: How do you see it in terms of it developing deeper attachment security? Would you agree that this approach could really be impactful?
1: Yes, I think that it can build secure attachment. I also think it can repair insecurity. And the way I think we go about it, is creating absolute safety. When you know your parent's not going to lose their grip and scream at you or grab you, you can feel more relaxed and more secure and more trust. When you know your parent sees you positively and holds you in high regard and is in awe of how awesome you are, you can feel good about yourself. So the aspects of identity that are entangled in attachment security and the aspects of relationship not being afraid to reach out because you know you've got enough greatness in you that people will find you attractive is being built by this. And you can rework with children the misconceptions they have about themselves and about the trustworthiness of others. And of course, it's not always complete. Just like parents don't all learn to regulate impeccably. But the perspective of the nurtured heart approach is any step in the right direction is valuable and should be celebrated.
2: Oh, I can see that. And I even think about the misperception of the child thinking they're bad, but the misperception also of the parent continuously focusing on the negative bad behavior and their misperception shifting to their own identity. And so, you know, we're just literally talking about co-regulation. This whole time we've been talking about it, but we're just really naming it as talking about regulating ourselves, but we're talking about co-regulation, a child regulating to the parent's nervous system where the negative goes down and the positive goes up. That sense of attunement is so powerful.
1: And the unflappable parent. Ah, uh, Especially. Kids lose it. That's no news. Kids lose it. So how can we be regulated and unflappable in the face of a child who's struggling? Well, struggling also doesn't help.
2: And when you see your parent losing it, of course, that's a communication. Your environment's not safe, especially it's not safe for you to be bad or to do something wrong, right? Like if you've done something wrong, all of a sudden the environment becomes unsafe.
1: That's right. And it's your fault. At some level, you feel that it's your fault because children believe just about everything that was a result of them.
2: So Elizabeth, if people want to reach out to you directly, how would they get a hold of you?
1: They can find me at my website, Doctor Elizabeth Sylvester. In Austin, Texas.
2: That's great. And maybe we can have Kathy Shear on too when your book hits the press. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to see you back again. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's been a blast.
2: All right. Thank you out there for the listeners for joining us today. If you feel like this episode was impactful as much as I do, please share it, send it to others. And let them gain from this experience as well. If you could take the time to rate and review us, that would really be helpful to us at Therapist Uncensored. And if anyone out there feels like they can help us produce such content to get it out to the world for those that might not otherwise be able to have this, please think about joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right. Thank you so much. And I'll see you around the bend.
0: Therapist Uncensored is
2: Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.
0: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.